right, let's uh, get started here. We are taking our quiz first. In chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the human body to illustrate features in the body of Christ. True. 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 Spirit baptism into the body of Christ usually takes place sometime after conversion. False. Although all the gifts are essential to the functioning of the body, some are more important. Well, I guess some gifts are more important. Apostles, you know, because he says first, he does seem to have a little ranking there. You know, he says first apostles, second prophets, and so forth. So, as we'll see, we'll see eventually here, in the foundation of the church, apostles and prophets founded the church. So, they were more important initially, you know. Uh, We don't mean that um, when we say some gifts are more important, uh, to the functioning. We don't mean to say that some people are more important to the functioning of the body or that all the gifts are necessary, but because he does say first apostles, second prophets, third, there does seem to be a little ranking there because he wants to get them to see tongues is at the bottom of my list here, you know, so they're not as important as apostles founding the church or they're not as good as prophets, as he says, because prophecy doesn't have to be interpreted it can just be spoken and so forth so there is some ranking in that sense it's not saying that other gifts are not necessary or essential I'm not saying they're not essential but all the gifts are essential um, apostles were chosen by Christ himself truth basically you say. all right <clears throat> So I'm going back here a little bit because we didn't quite finish uh, last time. And we're looking at spiritual gifts here. And uh, the time before last, uh, we looked at the test of the Spirit and the diversity of gifts. And the main thing that Paul is stressing in chapter 12 is the diversity of gifts. There are different gifts. They have different functions. They're all necessary functions. And so to do that, remember, he uses the illustration of the body here to try to bring that out. And we saw all of these points last time. um, And we were looking at E, basically, when we stopped last time. Couldn't quite get through that. So all these are designed to talk about... the, 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 The illustration here is designed to stress... Number two here, really, the sort of the diversity that are in the gifts and the necessity of each gift in the body. And the last thing that we were looking at, E here, um, each believer is a part of the body of Christ and no one is self-sufficient. So we we looked at verse 27 last time where Paul says, Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Um, And so now, as I said, uh, Paul makes it obvious what he has been saying, that you are the body of Christ. You Christians together make up the body of Christ. And there is 1128, the verse that seems to have some ranking to it, where Paul says, uh, excuse me, 1228, and God has placed in the church... First of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping of guidance and of different kinds of tongues. Um, 
And as I say, tongues is sort of at the clearly at the bottom of that list. And apostles are first. Apostles uh, laid the foundation of the church. We said that apostle was an especially gifted and divinely commissioned man who had the authority to speak for Christ. In order for to be an apostle, one had to be at, at least three necessary qualifications. We seem to be laid out in Scripture. One uh, had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Um, and Paul says that even he meets that qualification because he saw Christ. He actually saw a vision of Christ on the Damascus Road and so forth. And may have seen him at other times, we don't know. Uh, he was caught up in the third heaven and so forth. But as far as it's chosen as apostle, we think about the Damascus Road experience where the uh, people around him didn't see anything and they they just saw light and they couldn't hear what the words were spoken. But apparently that's when Paul uh, saw Christ. He says, uh, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? 1 Corinthians 9.1. And in Acts chapter 1, when they're choosing someone to replace Judas, they set out the requirement that he's got to be someone who's seen the Lord and so forth. Uh, and Paul says, he appeared to me, James and all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. So Paul's apostleship is a little abnormal. There's no question about that. So the only apostles we can be definitely sure of are the twelve and Paul. And Paul says the difference is that they are the apostles to the nation of Israel. He's the apostle of the Gentiles. He calls himself the apostle of the Gentiles. That's his specially chosen place. Whether there are other apostles, it's just not clear. Some say James, Galatians 1. Some say Barnabas, because in Acts, it, 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 um, Luke uses the phrase, the, the apostles Barnabas and Paul. But he may be using the word apostle in the sense of just missionaries. In other words, the Greek word here is apostolos. That's translated into Latin as missionary as we get our word missionary from there so sometimes the word apostle just means someone who is like the, Paul talks about the apostles of the churches or the representatives of the churches so sometimes it has a non-technical sense so the long and short of that is we can be sure of Paul the twelve if if there were other two if there were two others Barnabas and James it's possible the scripture doesn't say definitively that that is the case so they had to uh, see Christ or seen the risen Christ. They had to be appointed uh, directly by Jesus Christ. Uh, we know he appointed the twelve, and Paul says he was appointed. Paul, an apostle, sent not from man nor by man, but by Jesus Christ. And so Paul argues that he was appointed to be an apostle by Christ. Um, and also, uh, they had to be confirmed with miraculous signs and wonders. The, certainly the twelve disciples were sent out by Christ, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, I persevered and demonstrated among you the marks of the true apostolic, of a true apostle. What are the marks of a true apostle? Signs, wonders, and miracles. So signs, wonders, and miracles are not the normal thing. They're usually signs of authenticating of a message. If you look at the history of miracles and signs in the Bible, 
the first one we really see is Moses. Moses comes on the scene, and he's doing these miracles to authenticate the fact that he is God's representative to Pharaoh and so forth. you got Elijah and Elisha. You go for long periods of time. Elijah and Elisha. John the Baptist comes along. Jesus says he's the greatest prophet that ever lived, but he did no miracles. Then the apostles come along. They do miracles. Paul comes along. He does miracles. So miracles are an authentication of God's representative, usually when you're giving new truth. So we've got the New New Testament canon coming along. you got Moses with the Old Testament canon and so forth like that. Um, I said it should be obvious that there's no apostles after the death, the last one, presumably John. Of course, we said Roman Catholicism claims sort of an apostolic succession. Mormons claim that they have apostles and so forth. Numerous charismatic groups claim apostleship, claim they have apostles. Uh, I mentioned the Sovereign Grace Churches, but all kinds of charismatic groups or uh, third wave groups especially. So, if we look at the history of the charismatic movement, it starts around 1900. So the early Pentecostals in 1900... They did not, they did not, they believed that this, they believed, they were cessationists in the sense that they believed the gifts had ceased for 1900 years. And then in the latter reign, they used this prophecy of Joel about the early reign, the latter reign. They believed that starting around 1900, God was re-giving the gifts. So they, they, they say there weren't gifts all the way through those 1900 years. They ceased in the first century, but then they start again with the night 1900 remember we talked about Azusa Street and so forth 1960 you get the sort of the charismatic movement that's when you have uh, people outside of the Pentecostal tradition Pentecostal holiness we're talking about the Assemblies of God Church of God and a few other Pentecostal holiness denominations you, you have it break out into other denominations 1967, Roman Catholics began to speak in tongues, but in the 60s it broke out into various uh, Episcopal denominations, other denominations started picking up the charismatic gifts and so forth. Um, Then what you have in 1980 is what you sometimes call the third wave. There are two men who are very influential. They were both seminary professors, actually, at one time. They See Peter Wagner, John Wimber. Wimber died some years ago. Wagner died just a couple of years ago. Wimber was the sort of the scholar writer. So this is that was the first wave, the second, the third wave of the Holy Spirit. Um, he said that he coined this term around 1980. He said it began the third wave began around 1980. Now what this third wave is, it's kind of a reining in a little bit of the charismatic movement. Uh, in some ways, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's raining. In the sense of, um, they sort of abandoned the baptism of the Spirit as a crisis event subsequent to conversion. So they don't put as much emphasis on, you have to speak in tongues. They speak in tongues, but that's, that's not the great emphasis. And the Assemblies of God is right in their doctrinal statement. Everybody basically should speak in tongues as evidence of the, that is the that is the evidence of the baptism and everybody it's available to everybody and they want you to do it but the, the third wave here kind of moderates that um, they they tend to emphasize uh, other gifts over tongues 
you know, and, and on some charismatic groups, many Pentecostal groups, tongues is the initial thing, and it's the most important thing, and tends to be sometimes, uh, can be. They emphasize, uh, tend to emphasize other gifts. Um, they, um, they, they looked upon tongues, they saw it as not the great, they see it as the bottom of the list and so forth. The major emphasis in the third wave was on signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. So Wagner and Wimber taught courses at Fuller Seminary, and they were talked about, we're in a new third wave, the Spirit has come, we've got signs and wonders that are going to bring about conversions. So it's about church planning and building churches using signs and wonders. Uh, Wagner stayed as kind of a seminary professor. Uh, I can't give you the whole history of uh, uh, Wimber. He, he sort of didn't exactly start, but he sort of looked upon as the head of something called the Vineyard Movement. There's a whole group of churches throughout the country, hundreds and hundreds of churches, called Vineyard Churches. And they, they're part of this third wave, signs and wonders. Um, and in 2001, uh, Wagner said, we've entered the second apostolic age. Uh, and he wanted the church, he says, to embrace the apostolic office. Now remember, traditional Pentecostals didn't really, like, you know, as I said, if you look at the Assemblies of God stuff, they're trying to put down any apostles. They don't, they don't, traditional Pentecostals have not held to apostles. They, you know, they, they believe most of them are cessationist on the apostolic gift. Traditional Pentecostals are. But, uh, Wagner wants to bring back, one in the 2001, he said, we've got to bring back the apostolic office. Uh, he said, and I'm quoting here, uh, contemporary Christians can begin to approach the spiritual uh, vitality and power of the first century church only if you recognize and accept and receive and minister in all the spiritual gifts including the gift of the apostle now Wagner himself de- was he declared himself an apostle in 1995 so Wagner said I'm an apostle because two prophetesses uh, declared that he had received the apostolic anointing they said we, they had a prophecy Wagner you have received the apostolic anointing now you're an apostle so he began to call himself an apostle in 1995. Now this movement, a lot of this third wave, and this especially the apostolic part, is called the New Apostolic Reformation, the NAR. So you'll see even some churches. I've, I've looked around. I've seen some churches around here. I was looking at a church called the Legacy Church, um, and they... Uh, not, not, not here, not the Legacy Church here, but uh, I was looking up your church that you went to, that Legacy Church, which seems to be a pretty conservative church. But there's a church in Texas somewhere called the Legacy Church that's part of this new apostolic revolution. And uh, so these, uh, these new apostolic reformation, so there, the idea here of this new apostolic reformation is we're going to return to the apostles and prophets because, you know, apostles and prophets are clearly at the top of the list here in uh, our text. So we need to return to having apostles and prophets in the church. Um, they say that God always intended for the apostles and prophets to govern the church, not only the early church, but the church during each generation. Yet their rightful place of rule has been the 
neglected by Christians for centuries, replaced in most cases by pastors and elders. This so so um, so this movement is called an apostolic movement because it's restoring. See, our church is deficient because we don't have any apostles and prophets ruling our church. So a true church, a biblical church, according to this new apostolic reformation, is going to have apostles and prophets ruling the church or governing the church. Um, um, And it's a reformation because it's like the Protestant Reformation. We have a new reformation. Now we're bringing back the apostles that we should have never gotten rid of. So there's a lot of names associated with this. Uh, you may have heard some of them. See Peter Wagner I mentioned, a guy named uh, Rich Joyner, Mike Bickle, Bill Johnson. You mentioned Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson uh, is a well-known pastor who is part of this, Cindy Jacobs. There's all kinds of organizations, the International House of Prayer. You know, TBN, the Trinity Broadcast Network, was big on this. I, don't, I haven't seen them in years. God TV. Charisma Magazine. So there's all kinds of groups and organizations. You hear all kinds of buzzwords when you hear hear something like dominionism, generational curse, you know, and all this kind of talk about prayer walking, uh, soaking, spiritual mapping. Yes? So that vineyard movement, is that like the big umbrella? That's one of them, yeah. It's it's bigger than that, but yeah. The vineyard movement is trickle it down, then you get the Bill Johnson and yeah. you get the International House of Prayer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's hard to keep track of all that because there's no one thing. They intermix they, one to another, one to another, and so forth. Um, they say there's three million people in the United States associated with the New Apostolic Reformation. So it's a lot of people in these churches, thousands, loosely associated with it. It's a powerful movement. So this Bill Johnson is the pastor of uh, Bethel Church in Redding, California. He's one of the big movers and shakers in this movement. And he believes that what the church needs is new revelation. The Bible we have is not sufficient. We need new revelation from God in contrast to the old revelation, which we've had for 2,000 years here. Um. And if you, if you read what he has to say about what is this new revelation, it includes things like things that are revelation about things that are going on right now. Things that are going on in heaven. So he's going to, he tells us about things going on in heaven, new interpretations of scripture that are based on new revelations from the Holy Spirit, um, a new revelation of Jesus he talks about, uh, fresh music lyrics, uh, Anyway, it's just a lot of stuff there. Um, Here's what he says. I'll quote him in this book called The Supernatural Power of the Transformed Mind. I'm convinced that the pace of revelation will increase very rapidly in the last hours of history. Uh, The acceleration of revelation is beginning in our day. It's about the purposes of God being unveiled on the planet. It's absolutely impossible he says, to live the normal Christian life without receiving regular revelation from God. That means, apart from the Bible, you just can't live your life, you know. Well, I could go on and on about that kind of nonsense, but that's what we're facing. That's what we will see, and there's all kinds of churches around us that are caught up in this sort of nonsense. So I'm back thinking here about uh, 
what Paul is saying here in chapter 12 about apostles. And then he says, second, he says, prophets. And I say here, prophets spoke the very words of God with authority equal to the Old Testament prophets and equal to the words of Scripture. Apostles and prophets were custodians of the special revelation that provided the foundation of the church. We'll have to talk more about this verse, especially next week, but we see it here as a very important. Paul says, um, your members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the, the, the church, the foundation of the church was built on the apostles and prophets. Well, that's just that should tell you right now there's no apostles or prophets today. We need building the foundation. We, we're, we're in the superstructure phase right now. We're not in the foundational phase. Yes, prophets and apostles and prophets were necessary. But now we have a completed New Testament. We're, we don't need apostles and prophets. If we look at how Paul talks about in the pastoral epistles about the church, how it's governed, it's pastors and deacons. It's not apostles and prophets and that kind of thing. Um, in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, the text moves from the gift manifested, prophecy, in 12, 10, 13, 2, and 8, to the gifted person, prophets, suggesting no dichotomy is intended. So what I'm saying is, if we read through all the text here, 12 chapters, 12, 13, and 14, sometimes Paul talks about prophecy, sometimes he talks about the prophets, prophecy, prophets. He doesn't make a clear distinction. Clearly, there was an office of an apostle in the New Testament. What is an office? An office is something someone is appointed to, a position that one is called to fill. New Testament apostles were appointed to the office by Christ himself. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul focuses on the gifts themselves. So what I'm saying here is, we have these gifts. Some of the gifts also uh, involve an office. So there's a gift of apostleship, but there was someone was appointed to an office by Christ. That's that's a, a that's a, that's an office. Those who regularly exercise the gift of prophecy may have been commonly referred to as prophets. In Acts thirteen one, for example, Luke speaks of a particular order of prophets and teachers in the church of Antioch. What I'm trying to say here is that. It's not exactly clear that there's anyone who has the office of prophet like prophet Elijah and Elisha had the office of prophet or those prophets. Who wrote Isaiah the prophet? We're not sure that there's anybody in the New Testament really has an office like that. They're called prophets they because they regularly prophesize. Agabus is called a prophet. He prophesizes, but it's not clear that there is an office there. Clearly, there's an office of apostleship. Prophecy in both the Old and New Testaments spoke infallibly. That is, with 100% accuracy. Moses spells that out in Deuteronomy 18, 29. Well, it's not 29 through 22. It must be 32. must be 32 there, I guess. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything that I have not commanded... Or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims is the, in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, 
That is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not, so do not be alarmed. If someone declaring themselves a prophet proclaims any supposed revelation from God that turns out to be inaccurate or untrue, he must summarily be rejected be rejected as a spokesman for God. Deuteronomy 18 is clear that such prophets are counterfeits. But the charismatic movement is full of this. Prophets who are counterfeits in the sense of they just say all kinds of crazy things that don't come true. Uh, John MacArthur has this book, Strange Fire. It's a good book if you want to read more about the charismatic movement. Um, we usually have it in our place, but maybe somebody bought the copy. I was looking for it. John MacArthur recounts a whole series of prophecies by charismatic leaders that have proven to be false. Additional illustrations of egregious falsehood and bizarre blasphemies in charismatic prophecies are not difficult to find. Benny Hinn made a series of celebrated prophetic utterances in December 1989, none of which came true. He confidently told his congregation at the Orlando Christian Center that God had revealed to him that Fidel Castro would die sometime in the 1990s. He lasted a lot longer, didn't he? <laughs> the homosexual community in America would be destroyed by fire before 1995, and a major earthquake would cause havoc on the East Coast before the year 2000. It's, you can't keep up with all these things that they prophesy that are, that are wrong. Rick Joyner, another of the Kansas City prophets and founder of Morningstar Ministries, predicted in the 1900s that Southern California would experience an earthquake of such magnitude that much of the state would be swallowed by the Pacific Ocean. Though the prediction failed to come true, Joyner continues to insist it will happen eventually. In 2011, after a nine-magnitude earthquake hit Japan, Joyner claimed on the basis of prophetic revelation that the same de demonic forces that empowered Nazi Germany were using global events sparked by the earthquake in Japan to gain inroads into the United States. Charismatics try to get around the problem of erroneous prophecies by arguing that there are two kinds of prophets. There are infallible prophets and fallible prophets. So there's two kinds of prophets in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. The apostles and those who wrote the scripture are said to have been infallible. So the Old Testament prophets, they say they're all infallible. And the apostles and prophets who wrote the New Testament, they're infallible. But today's prophets are fallible. Charismatic prophet Bill Hammond says, We must not be quick to call someone a false prophet simply because he said what he said was inaccurate. Really? <laughs> Missing it a few times in prophecy does not make a false prophet. Okay. No mortal prophet is infallible. They are liable to make mistakes. But I say to me, it's impossible to believe that New Testament prophecy is different from Old Testament prophecy. One, one can understand the need for a new revelation from God as the program of God moves from the old dispensation of Israel to the new dispensation of the church. The gift of prophecy was beneficial to the first century church while the New Testament books were being written which would provide all the truth necessary for the church to carry out its mission in the new age. Once the scriptures were completed, there was no longer a need for such revelation. Protestants have traditionally believed in the sufficiency of scripture, the idea being that scripture is sufficient for our faith and salvation in this age and that God has given us everything we need to know in order to live lives that are pleasing to him in scripture. The Westminster Confession of Faith says... The whole counsel of God, 
concerning all things necessary for his glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. So we have believed in we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture around here. We don't believe it's necessary to have new revelation, or there is any such thing as new revelation going on now. Teachers presumably gave instruction. We're looking at that list: apostles, prophets, teachers. Presumably gave give instruction and application from the revelation already given, the Old and New Testaments. So teachers give instruction, application, miracles, and gifts of healing. We dealt with that in nine ten. So we talked about. The ability to do miraculous deeds, and, and, and then there's healings, gifts of healing, healing certain diseases. Help, helping appears only here in the New Testament. It has the idea of helpful deeds and is probably a general term for all kinds of assistance. So that could be a lot of things, you know, helping. A lot of ministries are helping ministries. Guidance is sometimes translated administration and suggests the idea of setting direction and guiding others. Verse 29, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? This list of rhetorical questions expects a no answer. That is the way it's constructed in the Greek. We know it's translated this way in our NIV, so we, we it's translated for us to expect it. Are all apostles? No, Paul said. All prophets? No. Teachers? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. So, uh, expect a no answer and reinforces Paul's emphasis on the fact of diversity within the body. Paul has taught that each person has received at least one gift and that no person has received all the gifts. The question would seem to imply that there is no single gift that everyone has received. Even in the first century, not everyone had the gift of tongues. Well, what do charismatics do about this? About uh, the fact that they expect everybody, these many charismatics, not all, but traditional Pentecostals, to expect everybody to speak in tongues. Well, to get around this, they say that there is the gift, there is tongues as the definitive sign of being baptized by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit baptism. So there's there's two kinds of tongues. There's really three kinds of tongues. But so there's the tongues of Acts, which were languages. That's not around anymore. Then there's two kinds of tongues. There is the tongues that are the um, that everybody gets who gets baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then there's what they call the gift in tongues, which is the ability to speak in tongues in public. So everybody gets this, uh, everybody can get this tongues as a sign of the baptism. Because remember, they believe in a second work of grace or a third work of grace. If you were here when I taught the, the holiness thing last summer, I talked about these works of grace. Protestants believe in one work of grace. That is generally, we get it all at salvation. Everything we need, we get the Holy Spirit, we get regenerated, we get born again, we get everything we need the moment we're saved. Now we have to work that out. We have to learn and study and be illuminated and all that. 
But we don't need another experience, another gifting in that sense. Then the Holy News comes along and says, no, there is a there is a special work of the Spirit you need afterward. After your side, because you're just sort of a carnal Christian, you just go along, you need the filling or the baptism, they call it different things. That was the holiness movement. Well, the holiness movement, then most of it got, not all of it, because there's plenty of holiness churches today that aren't charismatic. So there are holiness churches that aren't charismatic. They still believe in holiness, that is, they believe in a second work of grace, sanctification, perfect sanctification. Remember that when you get this sanctification, you're perfected. Now, it's not real perfection. Remember, it's you don't commit any known sins. You, you know, you don't, it's not really perfect, but you don't commit known sins. And you, so there's the holiness movement still there, but most of the holiness movement went into the Pentecostal movement. So you have a denomination like the Holiness Pentecostal Church. And uh, you have the formation of the Pentecostal churches came from holiness people, the Church of God, the Assemblies of God. Now, the Assemblies of God, they, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the Assemblies of God did not come out of the holiness movement exactly because they don't believe in that second work of grace. The Assemblies of God just believe in two works. They believe in two works of grace. The Church of God believes in three. So the Church of God that, that, uh, the Ken was a member of, that came out of the holiness movement. They believed in salvation, sanctification, instantaneous sanctification, and then the baptism of the Holy Spirit, three. But the Assemblies of God doesn't. They just believe in salvation. They believe in progressive sanctification like we do. So they're much more biblical in that sense. And then they believe, but they do believe in a second work of grace called the baptism. So they're the Church of God's third work is the Assemblies of God's second work. <laughs> but they both believe in the baptism of the Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. So they get around this idea that Paul says, clearly, not everybody speaks in tongues, you know. Well, everybody's supposed to. How is it? Well, there's two different kinds of tongues. The kind of tongues Paul's talking about here is not the kind of tongues that you get with the baptism. The kind of tongues you get with the baptism is everybody can get that. This is the gift of speaking in public, in church, of speaking in tongues, and then someone interpreting that. So, for example, the Assemblies of God official statement says, All believers are entitled to and should ardently expect and earnestly seek the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, according to the command of our Lord Jesus. The baptism of believers and the Holy Spirit is witnessed by the initial physical sign of speaking with tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. So everybody should get this. But that's not what Paul's talking about, they say. We're supposed to believe, you know. It's not what he's talking about here because clearly he says not everybody has this gift. So they, they differentiate two different kinds of tongues. 1231A. Now earnestly desire the greater gifts. This, sometime, this verse has sometimes been interpreted to suggest that believers should seek spiritual gifts. But as we've seen in verse 11, spiritual gifts are sovereignly given by the Holy Spirit. Remember, he says, All these are the work of the one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one as he determines. The greater gifts are presumably spelled out in verse 28, with apostles at the top of the list. 
Given the fact that apostles were chosen by Christ personally, no amount of desire can make one an apostle, obviously. The words, eagerly desire, translate the Greek word, the Greek verb, zelao, which means to be zealous for something. Uh, or to be, it can have a negative sense, to be jealous. I mean, there's a godly jealousy. It's translated jealous sometimes, zealous, jealous. It's the plural here. The Corinthians as a church are to be zealous, are eager for the greater gifts. To desire what is greater means to desire what is most beneficial for the church. In contrast, Paul has in mind prophecy over against uninterpreted tongues, as we'll see in chapter 14. To desire the greater gifts is simply a way of stating what the overall argument makes clear, namely that all things should be done for the edification of the whole body. So Paul seems to be saying, be concerned about, be zealous for the more important gifts rather than tongues. You're so caught up on tongues, but the, these they're, they're more important gifts. Prophecy is much better. Uh, Paul said, I'd rather speak five words, you know, prophetically than a thousand words with a tongue. Well, let's look at the superiority um, of love. 1231b through 1313. So we're taking up uh, a new section here in our discussion of 12.1 through 14.14. It probably divides better verse 12. Remember the the verse divisions or the chapter divisions are not inspired. So uh, most most scholars tend to think that we should take 31b with chapter 13 maybe. It's a transitional. 31b is transitional. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. The last part of verse 31 transitions to the theme of the next chapter which Paul calls the most excellent way. The way the Corinthians are pursuing with their view of the gifts is actually destructive to the church rather than seeking what is most beneficial for the church. What Paul calls the common good the most excellent way is the way of love, a fruit of the Spirit, not a spiritual gift. Gifts should be exercised in the context of love, for without love the gifts have no usefulness. Love, this word agape that you've heard, means to act in the best interest of another and is exemplified in the New Testament by God's giving of His Son. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul explains what love is in terms of actions, not feelings. Paul uses 15 verbs, not adjectives, in verses 4 through 7 to explain love. Love is active. It has to be shown. Well, first we see the necessity of love. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. In the first three verses, Paul says that if any of the gifts of the Spirit are evident in our lives but are not accompanied by the fruit of love, then the exercise of that gift is valueless. This is because, as we learn in chapter 12, each of the gifts has been given for the edification of fellow believers of the church and not to bring glory to ourselves. 13.1 If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels... But do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. I say in these verses, Paul moves from the actual to the hypothetical. Paul can speak in the tongues of men, but not the tongues of angels. So I'm saying he's moving from the actual. If I speak in the tongues of men, which I can do, or even if by some, you know, I'm speaking hyperbolically, I'm exaggerating. If I could speak in the tongues of angels, you know, he surely has the gift of prophecy, but he cannot fathom all mysteries and knowledge. He says, so I'm trying to show you the exaggeration here. If I have the gift of tongues of men, even if I had the ability to speak the tongues of angels, it does me no good without love. If I had the gift of prophecy, and it was such a gift that I could fathom all mysteries and knowledge, you know, he's sort of, as I say here, uh, he surely has the gift of prophecy, but he cannot fathom all mysteries and knowledge which could re require omniscience. Paul is using hyperbole, exaggeration, to make this point, his point. Even if he had these extraordinary gifts, <clears throat> gifts far beyond what the Corinthians are fascinated with, they would be of no value to him without love. When Paul speaks of not having love, he's not thinking of love as a possession of some kind, but to act in a way that is loving. Paul means to shock the Corinthians with these statements. They apparently placed great importance, if not the greatest importance, on certain spiritual gifts, especially tongues. But the gifts are really useless uh, unless exercised in love. Such tongues are only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, he says in verse 1. The idea being an empty, hollow sound, though it may be loud. In verse 3, Paul says that even self-sacrificing self -sacrificing philanthropy is worthless without love. Give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship. Now, if you have a different translation here, you, you, always, you can get different translations of this verse because the Greek here is not certain. It's not certain exactly what the Greek text is saying here uh, at this point. Some manuscripts have the word burned, and the NIV margin has that. If I give my body to be burned, you know, if I just give up my body, instead of boast. So it's either if I give my, if I give my, uh, if I, if I, if I, uh, if I give everything uh, and give my body to be burned, and I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give everything and even give my body to be burned, without love, I'm nothing. As I say here, there's only one letter difference in the Greek words. So <laughs> the difference between boasting and burning is one letter. And so when you look, the manuscripts, scribes, sometimes some manuscripts have one letter, some have the other letter. So uh, you'll see different translations. The NIV margin has the other one here. I didn't actually look to see, but some, some, some will have burned here. Um, the King James, I think, has burned there. You know, if I get my body to be burned, 
But that makes the same point. The point is exactly the same. If I do, no matter what kind of extraordinary sacrifice I make, it's it's of nothing if I don't have love. Don't do it in love. Well, then we see the character of love, 4 through 7. These verses are not so much a description of love as a depiction of love in action. They personify love, showing what it does, what it does not do, and the ways in which it manifests itself. In this way, Paul extols the virtues of love and shows it to be of surpassing value. Verse 4, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it does not. it is not proud. Love responds to others or to difficulties passively by being patient. So there's the passive side. Love is patient. And on the active side of being kind. So it's both passive and active. It's patient. It's kind. There are two these are two sides, two sides of God's response to us. Paul says in Romans 2 4, don't you uh, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? forbearance and patience so God is both kind positively he's patient forbearant not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance Paul now begins a list of verbs telling us how love does not behave the word envy it does not envy has the ideas of envy and jealousy used in it's used in 1 Corinthians 3 3 where Paul says you are still worldly for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not acting like mere humans? It's easy to be envious of the gifts of others is the, the problem here in Corinth. The word boast uh, seems to mean he preys on oneself. It describes one who behaves as a braggart. And this was one of their besetting sins. I say, which probably includes uh, boasting about certain gifts, undoubtedly tongues, among them. Remember, he talked about it. So then no more boasting about human leaders. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have you did not receive? And you did receive it, why do you boast? Your boasting is not good. So this is one of their problems, boasting. And Paul says, uh, love is not boastful. Pride. Pride's another character flaw we associate with the Corinthians. The Greek word means to have an exaggerated self-conception or to be puffed up. And in a number of verses, Paul talks about this problem. Brothers and sisters, I apply these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, don't go beyond what is written, then you will not be puffed up. It's the same word. We're talking about pride. You won't be proud. And you are proud. 5-2. About, now about food sacrifice to idols. We know what that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. It makes us proud. Verse 5. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Does, dishonor means to behave disgracefully toward others. It suggests poor manners and rude behavior. Those who see themselves as superior can easily look down on and behave badly toward those that see they see as beneath them. How we treat others who are not as gifted as we may be is a good indicator of our own spiritual condition. 
The word self-seeking, Paul says it's, love is not self-seeking or seeking its own advantage, is the very opposite of agape. Love does not seek to advance its own interest at the expense of others. Seeking one's own self-worth is not the highest good. Um, so Paul says, remember, one should not seek their own good, but the good of others. Paul says, I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of the many, so that they may be saved. Love is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered, which means that one who loves is not easily provoked or irritated by those around them, which is very similar to the patience that began the list. Love keeps no record of wrongs, reminds us of God's mercy toward us in that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That phrase, keep no records, is the same word as not counting in 2 Corinthians 5.19. So that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not keeping a record of people's sins against them. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? That's what forgiveness is. God is not keeping any record in heaven that he's going to bring up to us in that sense. How many of us keep records, you know? You know, you meet Christians like that who they remember everything that was ever done by anyone. <laughs> and they just can't get over it, you know. It's better to have a poor memory about these things. Love does not delight in the evil, but rejoices with the truth. Not only does love not keep a record of wrongs, literally evils, it does not delight in evil. It does not enjoy hearing about wrongdoing by others but enjoys and builds, rejoices in the triumph of truth, particularly the truth, the triumph of truth of the gospel in people's lives. Yeah, that's, that's a problem too. Some, some folks unfortunately do like to hear about other people's problems and difficulties. Verse 7, it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. The key word in verse 7 is always... That is what love always does. Love protects in that it's willing to overlook the shortcomings of others, not betray them. The Greek word translated protects can also have the idea of bearing or enduring, and it's not perfectly clear which idea Paul has in mind here. This, this meaning would, would be somewhat synonymous with the last quality, perseveres. Love also trusts in that it does not quickly give up on those who stumble in the Christian life. Love does not give up hoping for a better future for our fellow believers. And it perseveres in all these qualities. We might also express Paul's thought with Thistleton's translation here. He says, love never tires of support, never loses faith, never exhausts hope, and never gives up. Well, I got more there. I thought we would get further here, but... Maybe rather than starting this final section, uh, which has got some difficult stuff there in verse 10, since it's 12, we should wait until next week. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the truth of Scripture. <clears throat> we pray and thank you for how you have given it, 
how you inspired it, how you have preserved it down to our day. We believe, Lord, in the sufficiency of Scripture, and we trust in your word and believe it provides all that we need for life and godly living. Help us, Father, to uh, commit ourselves to be faithful to the word, faithful to what you say, obedient Christians. And give us understanding of these passages of Scripture as best we can as we seek to serve you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.